obviously we'll talk a little bit about grasshopper it's so far in the past so we won't go crazy deep dive on it but we will talk about asal masadi then we could talk about la because obviously gilly has a little skin in that game with with zacharias and with andrew douglas it's zacharia by the way whatever whatever yeah we're gonna, get our, we're gonna get your pronunciations on this pod down by the way save i it, know save right it. save it about to leave already packing come with me i'm not really asking we'll get away to a place where we don't know what about this this call is being recorded Fans, we are back for another edition of the Roundup, catching up on your weekly headlines, results, and news from the professional tour. And I'm glad to say now, college squash. I'm Connor Malley. And while we do have Bill Buckingham here, PJ Johnson will be sorely missed today. But to make up for it, we do have a special surprise. Buck, what do we have going on? I just want to wish the best of luck to PJ because he's in his, I think it's his 12-day darkness retreat where he goes in and he drinks the ayahuasca tea and thinks about what his future is going to hold. And so I'm hoping that goes well. I know you have to blank out all social media. So unlike normally where he will listen to this podcast, like religiously, because he always calls us and said, boys, you did a great job. Um, PJ is going to miss this one. So best of luck, PJ, and I hope you uh, find your way uh, to whatever it is uh, you want to do with your life at age 50. So uh, good luck with that. But with that being said, we have a very special guest, someone we've wanted to have on the rundown. We have the head men's coach at the University of Pennsylvania and the number one master of ceremonies in the world of squash, Gilly Lane, Francis Woo! Gilpin Lane. Where, Bill, where do those rankings come from? Are those your own MC rankings or those, Just, those out on Bleacher Report? It's my own MC rankings, and it usually goes by who did the last big event. And since you did the U.S. Open, Gilly, you are currently the number one MC. It's like the PSA ratings. They come out weekly now, so they don't have as much juice as they used to. End of season will tell, we'll tell the tale. I was waiting for your ranking of my closing ceremony because you have given rankings of all the pre trophy presentations, and I didn't get one. It was too clean. <laughs> it was too clean. <laughs> yeah, it, it was legit. It was legit. Well done. Yeah. yeah like every. It should be a segment, one mic, everyone knows the rules. There's only one mic. <laughs> that, is, that, that is absolutely true. It was the cleanest ceremony of the year of a platinum event. There was so few people on court. You didn't, you set a great precedent by not interviewing the runners up, which is usually the most awkward, the awkward interview of, of the year is some person who just got thrashed in a, in a platinum final. And then they come out and have to have you talk about how disappointed they are. <laughs> so yeah, that's, did, that is definitely an awkward moment. And then I think sometimes you get the person thanking everyone at the tournament before the winner. So then you get the double thank you. So it's uh, definitely, oh, wait, that person just stole what I was going to say kind of thing. But I think as, there's so many moving parts to that. So you, as an MC, you just want to keep the show rolling and you just yeah. want to get on and, and, and get the trophy to that person, get the big smile and the kiss of the trophy, make sure the trophy doesn't break. <laughs> With the lift? <laughs> yeah. like the lift the because, because the base is never actually screwed on because they're changing yeah. the name constantly. So to make sure it's together but it was good yeah it was a great tournament u.s open was i think it was the best u.s open in years by the oh way. my gosh so much drama so much drama like okay. all the way throughout the the tournament are we talking yeah. about the picking of the mc that drama or oh the tournament <laughs> oh we can't talk that's right we can't discuss that sorry about that ah. hey <laughs> by the, I, I do I, I have a question bill Gilly, yes. how was it because it's been a little bit of time since you were behind the mic as an mc how was it yeah, it was great. I think there is, as people that are passionate about squash, being amongst people that I've known for a really long time. So it's great to jump back into that role and definitely had the butterflies on quarterfinal night and to get your get into your groove pretty quick. But it was fun. And I think anyone who knows me, I think it suits my personality. And I, listen, Bill, 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 I was watching him's interviews. Now he's in Chicago and then he's in Houston. He's a world traveler. So I'm just trying to up my game and just I look up to him in so many ways. Stop it, Gilly. So good. <laughs> yes, that, that was so sincere. That was so sincere. It's ridiculous. How, how great was it though? Just finals on. So the, as you know, as an MC, the first couple rounds are absolutely brutal. Brutal. I, I think the the I think in the past, Bill, we've all been there, Connor. You ran the event one year. I think the hardest days are that second round when we had eight matches on the glass court starting at noon and those noon to four o'clock 
matches don't really actually give the players the crowd they deserve. And so having the Spectre Center with two glass courts, I know PJ said that he wanted in your last pod, he wanted it all on one uh, one court. But I actually think we're, we we give more matches on the glass court. We have it, it provides the players with the atmosphere that they they deserve deserve to play in front of big crowds. And I remember some years we we were pulling people from behind the curtain to watch the matches to look like we had people in the stands. And like that can't happen for our sport right now. That cannot happen, especially with the Olympic announcement and things like that. Like these players train so hard, they're they're paid not enough and the least that we can do is provide them a crowd. I thought the crowd was awesome for four nights. So so starting with that energy, it made it much easier to bring that energy for four straight nights. And as Bill knows, like you're doing eight straight days, your voice is cooked by the end and your head is sometimes just gone. Right. So you're allowed to stay, you can stay sharp, you can stay in it, you can bring more passion, more energy. And yeah, it was great. It was like, it was like getting a buy to, getting the buy to the, the, yeah, into totally, the round of 16 totally. quarters. <laughs> Yeah, 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 there's nothing like asking Norel Sherbini after she beats like the ranked player in the world in seven minutes. That was a really tough one, Nor. How'd, how'd you eke that one out? True, but it's just listen, being on court with her, like interviewing her is so special. You, we're witnessing the, I think, the best player ever, like on the women's side, playing right now in her prime, and she's still only 28, 29. 28, she just turned 28 today. Happy birthday, Norel Sherbini. Unbelievable, and she's just also an amazing human being. Yeah, <laughs> like she yeah. couldn't be nicer. So it's pretty awesome, Nicole. Like I, I trained with Nicole David, saw Nicole go through her kind of thing, and then to to see Nor do this, it's pretty awesome. All right, so just a little future advice, Gilly. Just stay off the mic. Uh, you've done your little U.S. Open enough. All right, listen. Yes. I, it's you have so a funny job. you say that because I he always say scraps. you can have. He needs the scraps. Yeah, <laughs> I need to. It's my one tournament. Hopefully, maybe put throw my name in the hat for L.A. LA 2028, maybe working my way towards the, the Olympics. Some can't play in it, so I got to figure out some way to get there. Flag bearer. I, I like think that's going to go to somebody else. <laughs> Possibly. So let's jump into it, Gilly. It's great to have you here. And we invited you on to talk. Obviously, the, the Collegiate Squash Association season is upon us. The Ivy League scrimmages are this week, but nice enough for you to come on for the whole show. Let's jump into some some actual PSA talk before we get to the CSA talk. There's not a, Because of the Pan Am games that are going on right now, the PSA is in a little bit of a lull. There's not any major tournaments going on. And since we didn't have a pod last week, we can talk about the Grasshopper which took place in Switzerland. Not a lot of juice to that tournament. It's two out of three. It's coming off the U.S. Open. It's just a, a tough spot for that event. But of course, they had the one thing that the U.S. Open did not have, and that is everyone's favorite player, including Gilly and I's for sure, as we talked about last night via text, is Mustafa Asal. So Mustafa Asal made his debut in Switzerland at the Grasshopper. And again, not without controversy because it follows him wherever he goes, whether it's his fault or not. So he won his first round match against Dussard pretty handily. A little rust was showing there. And then he came up against uh, a very tough Baptiste Massadi in the quarterfinals. And two out of three is always a coin flip, regardless of who's on court. And once again, the referees played a major part in in the decision in that match and in the outcome of that match. Um, Just to rehash it, it was, I believe, 7-7 in the third. There was a ball that Asal played to the far right front wall. Masadi went after it. It appeared at first, and again, appeared to me at first, that Asal not only trailed his leg, as he is wont to do, but he actually lifted his leg up and appeared to maliciously trip Masadi and plunging him into the wall. You slow that down. Of course, the crowd boos, the oohs and ahs. They go to the um, decision. They go to the the VR. VR comes back. Not only do they give Masadi a stroke, they give Asal a conduct stroke. So it goes from 7-7 to 9-7 in the blink of an eye. Masadi goes on and wins the match. The fans howl. Everyone is screaming for Asal's scalp, and he did it on purpose, and he should be banned again. And the whole anti-Asal crusade starts once more. And then we get a little technology thrown into the mix, and we get to see the slowdown of that play, which actually showed the leg was out there in the back, sure, but nothing malicious whatsoever. Masadi went after the ball, and his leg hitting Masal, hitting Asal, kicked Asal's leg up in the air. It was so obvious that it was not anything at all malicious on Asal's part. And the referee, in the end, they blew the call, right? And I think there's no other way to say that it was some anti-Asal um, sentiment that led to that 
conduct stroke being awarded and basically turning the tide of the match. Yeah, it's one of those things I think he's taken, he's had his ban. I think everyone almost needs to reset their expectations for him. And and unfortunately, he carries the stigma with him, right? So so the moment something looks bad, he's guilty, right? And and I uh, you had mentioned on your last pat, uh, pod that you you know you'd, you'd heard he's trying to clean things up, he's trying to work through that. When I was listening, um, he found out from somebody, and and hopefully he is. It's unfortunate because I think he was trying to do the the, the right thing, and obviously he's trying to play the right way. And I think this first tournament for him was always going to be, well, how is he going to react? How is he going to play when it gets edgy? Gonna, ha, what's going to happen? Is he going to revert to old tactics? Is he going to revert to something new? And I think that the best of three makes made it worse for him because there is that edginess, right? So he wins the first, then he loses the second, then all of a sudden, most top, and Baptiste is playing great, by the way. Let's take nothing mm. away from Baptiste. 14 in the 100%. world. Great guy. My wife's favorite player. She loves <laughs> Baptiste. <laughs> Not all the time. Great. He wants to win, so energy. There's it's high energy and high tension, and especially two out of three, anyone can win, right? I think all of that builds up, and then unfortunately, because of past history, it's boom. There you go. You're slapped. You're you, you're slapped again. Assault brings so much to the game, right? In terms of whether it's good notoriety, bad notoriety. I think a lot of the squash purists would say if, if there was no blocking and there's no, none of the antics. He's one of the, the, the most talented squash players ever. You know what I mean? The, what he can do with the ball is just absurd. And that's why I appreciate him. And I know I'm off the court as well. And he's a, I think he's a great guy. I want, him, I want to see him do well and clean up that. But I think referees and people have to go in. They know what's happened in the past, but they need to take each situation for that situation and not bring past thoughts into that. And I think that's what happens. And do you think that there was a lot of talk, Gilly, that the crowd had a lot to do with the conduct stroke being awarded, the booing and the re- constant showing of the replay and how the crowd reacted to that? Now, to me, that's a bit on the PSA because the VR referee probably shouldn't be anywhere near that crowd or hear anything such as that. But that that seemed to be the sentiment that the crowd is what led for this, to the stroke for being to be awarded. I, no. I, I don't want to say it, it is or it isn't. I think what we hope is that all referees are very professional and that's what they're getting paid to do. And that's our hope. And I know that I thought that the refereeing, there's some very good referees out there that, that do a great job. I thought the U S open was good. The, the crowd at any sporting event is going to try to change what the referee thinks. And, and it's the referee's job as a professional to, to, to not have anyone affect your decision. So I really hope that's not the case. I think it had everything to do with past history unfortunately. And I think that goes into someone's head. And there, there's things in the past that he's done that's just, we've seen it all on the slow-mos. And, but then again, if you show that on the slow-mo, a uh, couple tournaments before, when they break down the clips of him and everything like that, I think we have to do justice to the players as well, breaking down the, the, the clips on the positive side and say, wait, actually this went against him in this. So I think you have to be fair on that side. I'm not condoning what he did by, or, or those actions by any stretch but I think you also have to give him a fair shot as well yeah I don't think the crowd played as much of a factor I think what Gilly was talking about of his past history and that was the one incident that really that felt like old behavior to Saul and they wanted to really be punitive there what was interesting though is Saul didn't see, even seem to register it he was confused and was like wait a minute no you have the score wrong and it's like no you're awarded the conduct stroke it was interesting it really Saul to me seemed to be really putting a lot of effort to like not trying to repeat past behavior. He seemed somewhat subdued in certain areas. Like when the referee's talking, he was like very much, okay, yep. Like not being as edgy or combative with the decision coming out. Yeah. I, I, the other thing I want to bring up was the comments, the post-match interview that Baptiste said, just how much he, he was as if he had contributed towards the outcome and just saying how much, we need a Saul and how much he looks up to him and how much he's like really the future of our sport. So I thought that was a really for someone in that moment to step up and say that, which I, I believe in as well. I, I have a lot of hopes for Saul. I think he's certainly inspiring to watch. I think if he cuts out the antics, he will be potentially Sherbini esque. There's that possibility on the men's side. Was there a reason that we couldn't see the slow-mo replay 
while the match was going on. So every we saw afterwards, we saw the breakdown, and we saw the replays that showed that it wasn't malicious on his part. But we didn't see those till the next day. So with the the infusion of money into the PSA tour, I think it, it behooves them to have that those kind of replays available to the referee in real time so the actual the correct calls could be made. Because I think if the referee saw what we saw the next day, that he would not have given him a con. He may still given him a, a stroke because he blocked him, but he probably wouldn't have given him a conduct stroke. I think that's just like in any, any sport, Bill, right? NFL, we watch every weekend. Obviously, they can slow it down. But when we see different angles, and I think in real time, they need to make that decision pretty quickly because they don't want to delay the, delay the game. So I, I think it's more. I think it more has to do with not delaying the game any further, and, and, and we don't want the stoppages. It's the same way we don't want the stoppages with the lets, right? So when we decided to go more to stroke or no let, we're, we're, we want continuous play. And it's so funny that we're talking about Olympics, right? One of the things that maybe didn't get us into the Olympics was the stoppage, stop, start, the arguing with the ref. If they want a more continuous play, it's okay, they're going to make the decision. Now, if they had that technology available, obviously it's great because then we get to see it. But then there's also part of me that's saying there is human error. I watch soccer every yeah. weekend, the Premier League, and what's going on with VAR is, is insane. They're breaking it down to the fingernail. Right. And it's they're supposed to be human error. I've been, been part of matches that there is human error like we didn't have we didn't have any replay so it's like kind of one of those things that you, I, I grew up with in sport right and now it's okay we're gonna replay and we're gonna go back to the booth for everything totally. so i would just hope that this is again i think as well getting more high level players in that refereeing position to understand exactly what's going on because of the nuances of the game now are they're so nuanced that they can understand maybe the movements off the ball and things of that nature. But. And just curious what, what you guys think of on the PSA side, obviously the story going in was a Saul and more, he, him working with uh, James Wilstrop leading up to this tournament during his ban. And then, and I understanding that there's a limited amount of announcers in the pool to use, especially for tournaments in Europe and there's budgets, but struck me as a little odd to have James Wilstrop and Vanessa Atkinson basically heavily commenting on his matches while they were going on. I just, it just seems to me that's not something that a professional sport would do. It, it's, I think it's just, again, it's figuring out who's there and who's going to be great for the, the, the camera. And you want people in there that have world-class knowledge and they both do. They're both world number one. And so I think I, I don't, we, I, I haven't heard James hasn't really been in the booth from that much in many tournaments. So I thought it was really interesting to hear how he thinks about the game. And, and as someone who competed against him, it's always great to hear how those players think about the game because we never ask each other that on tour, nor would they ever share that, right? So at breakfast, one player is not going to tell another player, this is how I think about the game because then it might provide an edge to the other player. So for me as a squash player who played with James and played against James and looked up to James in a lot of ways, like to hear his kind of thoughts on the game was pretty, I thought it was pretty awesome. Yeah, no, I'm not saying he's not very good at it. I was just didn't think when Asal was on court that he or Vanessa should have been involved with any of the announcing. That's my only yeah. point. There's a conflict of interest there by far. There's a thought, and again, I see it on the Reddit boards and I see it online. There's a thought that there's bias amongst the announcers anyways. And and it happens, right? You're so close to the tour players. You're having breakfast with them. You're, as you said, you're there, you're traveling with them. There's going to be a natural bias, but this was something that was pretty overt. And you, you could even hear Vanessa wincing sometimes during the play-by-play of the assault match. And it, it just struck me as very unprofessional to have her as part of that. Yeah. I, I felt the same way about the Phillies Diamondback series. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think that, I think this, the reality is still the economics involved that they were going to be there. For so, sure. Understood. Un- take I just, advantage it- of the talent pool that is there and trying to build it out. I Part of this is you're talking about that there's a bias towards or the, the commentators out there. I don't see the bias exactly that way. I do think we need to build out the diversity of the commentators. That's a separate thing. I don't think it says overt. Okay. I All think right. they've done a great job. I think getting new voices in there has been phenomenal. And being a part of the U.S. Open pro- production, thought it was great. Thought it was – and. I love that they have having PJ down courtside during the finals was phenomenal. I think we need to do more of that. I felt like he was like Brad Gilbert at the U.S. Open seeing what was I was standing right behind him when he was giving updates about Ali's blood injury. That was awesome. I think Lisa Aiken does a great job. I think she's incredible. And Ashling and Joey and just I've been I 
the direction that we are going. So to, to get more people involved and as we get bigger, I think get more ideas in there as well. Right. I also right. would love to get somebody from Egypt in there. I think and I, given that we have so many talented Egyptians on the tour, I would love to get a commentator from Egypt to talk more about upbringing and style of play and maybe what that person's thinking. And because we get, like Bill said, one side of it sometimes. I want the, I want, we would need all the sides. We need every country involved. I would love to see that. I think uh, in terms of throwing out, uh, I'd be curious about who you think would be good fits. What occurred to me is Whale of Hindi. He is in that position, has that experience, and knows the players. Uh, but Shabana would be awesome. But who else would be good? I'd say once he retires, Mohammed Al Shabagi would be the best. He would be so outstanding. Yeah, Shabagi is a beast. He, he he's would, awesome. He would be. The, he can't do it. He can't do it while he's still on the no, tour. No, so no, while he's on the tour for sure. So I think we just have to wait a little bit. But when he retires, I think he yeah. would be so unfiltered, and it, I would love to see him in the booth with Joey. Would I would be, love to see him in the booth. With with Lee Beachel, oh my god, <laughs> yes. the battles that happen behind the scenes—it's great. Uh, what about you? Rammy, Who do you think? Rammy, I think Rammy. Ah, would be yeah, ridiculous. Rammy. Would he lip sync or would he actually speak? Both. Okay, all right. Just curious. Both. <laughs> shout out yeah. Rammy's. Shout out Rammy's music career. <laughs> Rammy, he played the game differently than everyone else, and but again, would love to see or hear what he thinks people's games and how how they're putting pressure on people and i think it would be incredible i think it would be awesome well, piggybacking off of that actually we should then get hisham in the booth because then he could just do all different accents and dialects <laughs> we immediately get representation across the board yeah darwish darwish shabana rami elborosi those would be my four picks so gilly I, I know i said i wouldn't do this but i have to this is the point i figure i have to do this just give me 10 seconds of Mohammed El Shrabagi announcing a squash match. Just give me 10 seconds. <laughs> Come on, do it. Now you put in me on the spot. Come on, do it. On the spot. Do I, it. I, I have to build up maybe towards the end of the pod. Okay, right, just yeah. to leave every, maybe to keep everyone. Just so you know, besides being the most talented MC on the PSA tour, Gilly also has a, a closet full of imitations that he does. And he is hesitant to break them out for various reasons. Number one, because I want him to say things that are very salacious as those people that will get Gilly in trouble because Gilly, unlike Connor and I, has has a job that people actually care about and he may actually, <laughs> he may actually get in trouble and lose his job over it. But I, that doesn't affect me, so I'm willing to have Gilly do it for the podcast. This is good tape, a little cliffhanger and getting audience to, to hang in there. So maybe at the yeah. end, Gilly. On the yeah. tennis world, who would do that pretty well is Andy Roddick. Yeah, he would no. imitate other players. Yeah, he would, and he does them like on court. The actual physical attributes of them on court, also, he does a great yeah. Djokovic. He's easier to do though. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent the case. So before we leave, the, the I, I have to give a shout out to the folks at the Chicago, the, the Chicago Open, the Lifetime Fitness Thirty K that I emceed a couple of weeks back. Great. Is this part of your contract? This is, it is absolutely part of my contract. I have to talk about it before and after. And also, I wanted to give a shout out because one of Gilly's old players reached the finals, Ali Abu Alainen made it to the finals, losing out to Mohamed El Sherbini. Great tournament, great matches, played on a, a traditional court. So some of the, rally, the rallies just lasted forever. It was so warm there. Putting a point away was a monumental feat. So just the rallies just went on and on, and there were just some really great play. And <laughs> it being it being me emceeing, there was always some issues. I did call Mohamed El Sherbini, Mohamed El Sherbagi once, which is very fair, by the way. That's not that... Yeah, upgrade. Upgrade, exactly. <laughs> but the best was during the semifinal, I completely forgot Ali Abu Alainen's name. <laughs> completely hey, forgot. You know what? Listen, it happens. It happens. I forgot two people's names, and I had to quickly look at the board to, to remember the name, and you just got... You know uh, what I mean? Exactly. Thankfully, thankfully, the players these days wear their names on the back of their shirts a lot. So I just glanced. Turn around. Turn around. <laughs> Excuse me, mister. Will you please turn around so I could say who you are? <laughs> so that, those were highlights. But I just want to off the court. I just want to give three quick highlights. So number one, I signed three autographs in Chicago, bringing my total, my lifetime total of autographs to seven. So I keep a tally. I've signed seven autographs now, not including like my signature on the hotel I'm not counting those, like signing a hotel bill or anything like that. But three autographs in Chicago. I think the oldest person who asked me for their autograph was seven. So <laughs> my demographic is going through the roof. But the the highlight, Connor, of the of the trip was obviously food related. I went out and had some ramen at, at a little uh, bar 
like in some strip mall in Chicago. And the guy, the person sitting next to me, we were sitting at the ramen at the bar, like the ramen bar, asked me if I wanted to try some of his food. I didn't even ask him. He literally just- No way. Yeah, shocking. Gilly, are you aware of this, that I ask people to try their food? So I'm not a big, good, I'm not a good food share. So I would not be, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I am known like at our team meals is I order what I want to order and I'm going to eat that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we wouldn't be good. We wouldn't be good so, together. So imagine this, Gilly, we're out at a restaurant and then he reaches across the other table to be like, can I get a bite of that? Yeah, that would be no go. And then I would ask to be, and then I would ask to move tables. As, Check, please. Check. Especially if I'm with my Together. son as well, I'm going to be like, excuse me, sorry. Yeah, you cannot be trying my food. In Chicago, I do that, Gilly, and it's one of my trademarks. Typically, I've had a few beers in me when I do it, but I have done it stone cold sober also. But in Chicago, the person just ordered, he had some like these soy wings or soy sauce wings or something. And he just looked at me randomly and said, hey, would you like to try one of these? And I was like, Am I being punked right now? Is somebody setting me up for this? And I was like, sure. I tried one. It was okay. But the worst part was I had ordered dumplings and he only got six dumplings. And now I was obligated to offer him one. Which So you're that guy who doesn't share his own food, but then takes other people's food? If someone asks me, I will share. But I was like okay. obligated to actually ask him if he wanted one of my dumplings, which he did. So <laughs> that, that was a, a very strange, it was like a little well, bizarre world. That's exactly, so you just had your strategy used against you. I did. How did that feel? It, How did that feel? Didn't feel great, I got to say. Did not feel great, but you know what? Lesson learned. Lastly, Connor, live, I, not, I noticed- Live by the sword, die by the sword. <laughs> by the skewer. Thank you. Lastly, Connor, I noticed that you are wearing a U.S. squash national team shirt uh, um, that appears to be the outfit from Quito Pan Am Games. Is that correct? Wrong, wrong. Go ahead, Gilly. That, that is he, what he is wearing. Uh -huh. Okay, so Connor revolutionized the, the Team USA gear for the national team. Okay. When we went to Cuenca for the Pan Ams in 2007, this is from 2007, the top he's wearing. Now, where's Cuenca? It is, okay, so it's a small place in Ecuador. You fly into Quito, Isn't then that... you got to take a little pond hopper to yes. literally to, to Cuenca. But it's, we it's, get it's to Ecuador. Oh, so I said Quito. Excuse so me. Wrong. Excuse me. Excuse me. Yeah, it's wrong. <laughs> hey, let's invite Gilly on more, Connor. I'm loving it. He can correct your pronunciations. This is immediate fact checking. This is awesome. awesome. No, but so that that team, we showed up with all this unbelievable Adidas gear, and everybody wanted our gear. And Connor was like, you know what? For this trip, we're gonna get the best gear that we've ever got, and it was awesome. It was Adidas head to toe. We had red, white, and blue, everything. It looked clean. Like, we looked yeah. good. So, Gilly, the reason I brought it up is in Chicago, there was a amateur tournament going on, like a skill level event, and a bunch right. of, there was like little kids playing in it, adults from the club, and the University of Illinois club team came, and a bunch of them okay. played in different draws. And one of the guys on the Sunday had the white version of what Connor's wearing. And I and I have one of those, and I got it because Connor used to maybe order some little too much gear, and he had a little extra left over. So some people used to get get yeah, exactly. I asked the guy, I, and he was like a nineteen year old kid. I said, "Where did you get that?" I said, "You know what that's from?" And I again, now I'll have to go back and correct that it wasn't from Keto because that's what I told him. But he said the previous week he had bought it off eBay for twenty one dollars. <laughs> Can you believe that? That is insane. That's actually and, absurd. The white one wasn't from Quito, by the way, though, or from Cuenca. I just have to let you know because that blue one is the only one we got, and it's the only one. It's the only shirt that I didn't give away. Onward for the PSA tour. Lastly, and again, this is another shout out to Gilly. So the LA, I, I forget actually, it had a weird name. It was called like the LA World Open or LA World or something. Just took place. It was a 15k at the Jonathan Club in Los Angeles, and. Gilly, do you want to, I, I know who won, but for fear that I'm going to mispronounce his name, could you tell me the name of the 16-year-old who became the youngest male on the PSA tour to ever win an event from Egypt? Can you tell me what his name was? Mohamed Zachariah. Mohamed Zachariah. Exactly. I was close. I, I said Mohamed Zacharias, but I was close. He, <laughs> 16 years old. He was the runner-up at the Junior Worlds this past year. He lost to 27-year-old Hamza Khan in the final. And he beat Andrew Douglas, another UPenn alum in the final. Odd scoreline, Gilly. I don't know if you've talked to Andrew since the event. A very odd scoreline for an event. Andrew was up two games to love. He won 11-6, 11-7. And then the last three games were 11-1, 11-8, 11-1.
just a very odd scoreline. So I, I don't know if you've talked to Andrew since then or if you've... Uh... I, I haven't talked to Andrew. I, I watched the match. I watched the whole thing. It was just the tale of... it. For It's the tale of how squash goes, like in terms of certain games, right? One player is asserting themselves for two games. There might be a, a drop in whether it's energy, whether it is uh, quality of shot, right? And then in, in certain terms, like sometimes you, you throw a game when you know it's gone, right? So if you get out to a bad start and you're winning to love and you feel, okay, you know what? This game's gotten a little out of hand. I don't, I want to conserve a little energy. You might throw a game, the third or the fourth, just to save yourself. And I, I think that was more of it than anything, but I, you, but the quality from Muhammad and was incredible. The last three games, it was pretty, pretty spectacular. And yeah. And, and it's, it, it basically, you saw important it is to get off to good starts in games. And when you're playing on the pro tour, you cannot play from a serious deficit and, and it doesn't matter how old anyone is. If they're playing, if someone's playing at that level, I lost to Henrik Mustonen in, in Finland when he was 16 years old. And I was, and I played Ali Farag when he was 17 years old. Like it, it those things, it, when you're playing on tour and in those moments, anything can happen. And I, I think you see the change of tactics, you see the change of momentum and those score lines happen. And I, I try not to read into them too much. You try, and as a coach, you try to say, okay, how do we change moving forward? Because sometimes it, it could just be, it could just be a tactical thing. It could also just be like, hey. I don't really want to push too hard knowing that this might go five and I need to save some energy. But I haven't spoken to him uh, since he's, I know he's back now in Philly. But it's also just from my standpoint, we had we had two boys that are doing great on the tour that made two finals of, and, and getting there is, is hard enough the tour. So for sure, it's it's but it's also an incredible accomplishment. And, and for someone that young and, and the future of the game is really bright. What was the court like? I I watched. I saw some stills. The court looked really cool at the Jonathan Club. I didn't see the stream. How did it look on the stream? Stream it looked great. It was a little loud, but it's, it sounded like maybe one of those panel courts that you have maybe at a lifetime or something along those lines. Where, but I did. I love the signage up the top. Signage was cool. The signage was great. I didn't really get a sense of how deep the like how many fans could be there. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really cool that right after LA got announced as being able to host the Olympics, that we had a pro tournament there. And so my hope is that tournament will continue to grow. And I think Gus Cook ran the tournament. Gus ran the North American Open. And I think he's a, he does a great job with events. If he can get that bigger and bigger in, in anticipation for LA, I think that's just going to help us tremendously. Right. Since we're on that topic, and I know it's maybe not quite in the order of what we did the rundown, let's just briefly get your take on the Olympics, Gilly. We talked about it last week. Obviously, very exciting for the sport. Curious from a CSA coach point of view, would you say the Olympics is a good recruiting tool? Are you talking to your kids now and saying, hey, come to UPenn. You're going you're to be playing a very high level of squash while getting a great education, and it's not going to affect your Olympic chances negatively like it might have in the past. If anything, it may buoy them. I want to, before talking about how, in terms of effects recruiting, I think it's great for the CSA in terms of how we continue to grow. So now as we start to pitch the programs that are club programs, we need those club programs to become varsity. So now having the Olympics kind of to say, hey, this is Olympic sport. If we can make your club program a varsity sport, we're going to grow our sport. I liken us to what lacrosse was maybe in the early 90s when you only get the NCAA national championship game on ESPN and you're like, how many schools have lacrosse? Princeton and right. the UVA playing in the final. We're at that point with the CSA where we need more teams. So like this announcement couldn't have been at a better, come at a better time. It, it, it helps strengthen our argument as an association to athletic directors to say, hey, we can bring big time world-class athletes to your university that could go on and represent their country at the Olympics and also say they went to your school, right? right? And so the Michigans, the Ohio States, UT, let's get it at Texas, USC, UCLA, now that the the Olympics are coming to LA, like Southern California. And I think that timing has been perfect for us because we are trying to make a push to add more teams. We need more women's teams. We need more and, and we need to more to, we need more teams to provide more opportunities for student athletes because right now there are two, there are more squash players than there are recruiting spots. Right. We need to open up more recruiting spots. And I always say this, that I'll know our sport's in a good place when the Ivy League's not the best league. When the ACC, the Pac-12, the you know, Big Ten, like, it's, that's what we need. We need. In terms of how it's the players, I think the players now that are towards, in college, that are towards the end of 
their college career are now thinking, maybe I am going to give pro a shot, right? I think that is what has been the biggest response so far. In terms of the, the younger players through, I think it's actually going to give them two decisions, right? It's going to say, I think the funding is going to increase in all of the federations. So it's going to say, do I go to college or do I not go to college? Because we've seen and, and we've talked about it, it's going to be a 32 draw with two players from each. So you need to be able to manage both the PSA, your PSA ranking, <laughs> your school and college squash. So it's a big it's a big ass. I think there's certain places that can do that. I, I won't go too deep into that, but, Check but, but I think it's given people a lot of excitement, but also maybe the decision to delay, I would say the, I, I always just say the finance consulting HR world and go play for a bit, give it a go. The biggest thing though, and I think it was talked about maybe on your last pod or I heard it on something else is what's really important is we get into the following one. Right. So we need to make sure that 2028 is awesome and that 2032 happens. It's good to hear that the younger players are excited about this because I was wondering whether, especially when you, you get these 18, 19-year-olds, whether the Olympics aren't a thing for them anymore. Because the Olympics aren't as big as they were when we were kids, for sure. When we were kids, the Olympics were a huge deal. You'd be glued it was to everything. Your, yeah, because there wasn't as much to watch on TV. There wasn't the internet. The Olympics were, like you said, everything. You were glued to it. Those people came out of the Olympics as stars. The Bruce Jenners of the world, the Nadia Comaneci's, the Mary Lou Retton's. Michael Johnson. Michael Johnson. People like that. So I was curious whether the young kids think the Olympics are as big as we as older people think. I'm just actually excited to see how it changes certain players on tour and what they're doing for the next four years. Because the one thing about the grasshopper, it was like two days after the U.S. Open. Right. Those players were flying. They'd just come from Qatar. Yeah. They had played the U.S. Open, then they played Grasshopper, and then the U.S. players are at the Pan Am. It's a lot. It's a grind. Yeah. It's a, it, Amanda Sobe flew from Houston to L.A. to do an exhibition, like a U.S. versus the world exhibition at Squash Zone, flew to Philadelphia to play in Philadelphia, and now is at the Pan Ams. So yeah, it's a, it is a huge grind. Speaking of, it was an interesting point you made of the the other conferences getting squash and, and developing squash teams like the Pac-10 and the ACC, the big sports schools. It would be fun to see the coaching carousel like we see in college football and college basketball to the point where will we be tracking Gilly Lane's private plane maybe that's flying out to, I don't know, Austin, to go talk to UT, will it get to that level? <laughs> Justin Bieber said, you never say never. But no, I think what it would do is more opportunity for more people to get involved with college squash. And I think, I think, as we all know, when one of these jobs opens up, a college squash job is a job that you, you look at the great, that the, the, the famous coaches, they stay for a really long time, right? And that's something I think people are very aware of. And I think that's what makes college coaching so unique is that if, if most of the time people are in one place for right. a really long time. And so I've been, personally, I've been blessed. I only own one school's clothing. I thought, I can't, I don't want to answer that question, but you, you never say never because it's because once the, the moment you say there's no chance and then something comes up, then people call you a liar. Yeah. I'm I like, but I love my job. So my, <laughs> I like, I like my spot. <laughs> my, my goal is to put you in awkward positions at least three times during this uh, podcast. So far we've had the Mohammed Al-Shirbagi invitation, which you have refused to do thus far. And now I'm talking about you leaving your alma mater and one of the top coaching jobs to go to a school that doesn't have a program yet. So we'll, we'll yeah, see what's next. Yeah. And uproot my family. <laughs> oh, ex exactly the case. Moving on to the Pan Am games, which we talked about looking at Connor's uniform. The Pan Ams are going on right now, but these are the full Pan Am games, the full sports squash is a part of it. So almost like a, a pre-Olympic international team, individual competition. U.S. doing very well right now on the women's side. We have the semifinals are today. We have three of the four women playing in the semifinals, Stefanoni, Fichter, and Sobi. So we're guaranteed, guaranteed medals there. On the men's side, Timothy Brownell lost to Cesar Salazar last night. So there won't be any medals on the men's individual side. And then the double starts and then the team starts. So just my quick take on it. Obviously, the draws are not strong, right? We're looking at Amanda Sobe and Olivia Victor are by far the strongest players on the women's side. Well, Marina's playing. Marina's playing Amanda. Oh, and I, I then Olivia's playing Holly Norton. Holly Norton. So Holly's strong. So Olivia has to come to play. And again, there's been a lot of events back to back: Paris, Qatar, U.S. Grasshopper. Boom. Right. You know what I mean. Olivia had a, a her wedding thrown in there too. So. Yeah, as well. Right after. Right. Amanda's going to win the gold medal. Come on, let's look. 
it's a great it's a great result for Marina. By the way, she's going to get a, a medal because they don't play the three four. Oh, so her winning against uh, Nicole was for at least a bronze. So the yeah. U.S. is going to come away with three medals, which is incredible on the women's side. And they 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 have the best they have the best person as well reserve at the tournament playing not playing as well with Olivia Klein just because you can only play two players and Marina actually is playing because she won the junior uh, Pan Ams. And so that was a direct spot in and that's why Marina's playing. Got it. Got so it. Wow. whoever won the junior Pan Ams, that's got that spot. Got it. Okay. So, yeah. so was, that's why was, there's thanks. three US one, players. Yeah. I was wondering about that. And just quickly before going further, cause this is, this event's confusing and I just want to give the listener who might not be familiar is like, there are seven competitions going on during this week. Right. In so there's, yeah. So there's singles, doubles, and teams. And in the doubles, obviously men's and women's, but then there's a mixed component. So really seven gold medals up for grabs. And this is just brutal on the athletes. Gilly, if you were putting your butt, maybe rewind the clock when you're like peak form on the PSA, but talk about how grueling this event is. It's really hard. And I think for me though, like when you play for playing for the States was always what I wanted to do. It's always where I played the best. So like I play four matches in a day for the States, but it's intense. It's mentally and physically draining for some of the people to have to go play individuals, then play doubles and then play the individuals again. And two, the doubles, like two right, or three a day. Wide court, 13 inch 10. It's taxing. But then I get to the, and then the other part about it is that playing in, and, and Connor as this playing in South America and Central America is hard. And yeah. the passion that the, the players have, these countries have for Pan Americans, like, I cannot describe that. It is something that you have to see. It is a to take all the results of the PSA World Tour out, throw them out the window. When you play at this event, anything can happen. And the pride and passion that these players have, it's certain players just play better when they have their nation's colors on them. 100. And this is what happens. You're going to see it in the doubles. There could be some crazy results. There could be some crazy results in the teams. Do I think the, the U.S. women are going to win? Yeah, I, for sure. Count yeah. But it's a brutal event. It's a brutal event, right? So today's, so the first, right? Just to, for instance, the women played, the women are going to play two matches today. So that would be Amanda and whoever, Amanda's, let's say, take Amanda, for example. She's going to have four matches in two days. Then on the second, she starts the women's doubles and she's got two doubles matches that day, that day. They start she have to play the final of the doubles if they make it that far on the third. And then their first round team match will be on the third too. By the way, there's no reserve for person yeah. team where you can sub people in and out. It's three players. That's it. Yeah. So an answer to that to me would be to lose the doubles, right? Play the singles, play the teams. The doubles is a joke. Let's. I know you guys. No, you know, no, no. Here we go. We're going to have this no, debate again. They don't play doubles. No, no, no. Else, but Phil, 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 stop. Bills, stop. Good. Tell me why the doubles are not a joke. Tell me why these eight-player eight draw doubles and six-player draws in the mixed aren't a joke. Four, four words. Go ahead. Also, like, gold. About the big events, you have to promote the big events. But in, in at the Pan American Games, to provide opportunity to win a medal, you have to. Massive for every country, whether it's a bronze, whether it's a silver. There are countries that just train for this. Yeah, I... Bill, I think you're separate the argument from should they be in or not. That's a different argument. That's the argument. That's my argument. They yeah. shouldn't be in. That, okay, great. But that's a separate argument. Sure. Now, gold, they're the, in. Connor, gold is four letters, not four words. Just FYI. Is that what I, I said? Okay. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> gold medal <laughs> opportunity. Get a, a little excited. It's okay. <laughs> Did I say that's That's nice. You can call me out on one thing, Bill, versus we get to call you out on about 100. True. Good for you. Yeah, so it's a separate thing. Should it be in or not? Great, it's in. Mm -hmm. So you're going to win as many golds as you can. True. Why not? True. Agree. I agree I agree 100%. You're right. My argument is that they shouldn't it shouldn't be in. Okay. But we I, I I know that federations will 100% they need to win medals for their funding. Mm -hmm. So on the women's side, I would pro if if I'm not team USA, Probably looking, you got to try to win in doubles. Singles is going to be really hard. You have the world number six, the world number nine, the world number 14 playing on the team. It's going to be pretty hard to win two matches against right. them. So you're you're trying to, to, to medal as much as possible, which then provides more funding for your sport. 
for squash, we need all the funding we can get. So I think allowing and but and and also softball doubles in the states. No one plays hardball doubles in South America or in Central America, but we play hardball doubles here, and we're all say, "Oh, what a great sport it is!" But everywhere else around the world, people are playing softball doubles. They have no idea what hardball doubles is. Just know, Gilly, the words "what a great sport it is" about hardball doubles has never come out of my mouth. Just FYI, that's true. Actually, Gilly, <laughs> speaking of that, because you, you you've dabbled in all these, does the hardball tactics translate well onto softball doubles? From just more you have creative with your angles. If you play singles on the international doubles court, you're going to get picked apart. But if you are more creative, you'll see the best international doubles teams like softball doubles more up the middle, crazier angles, really changing the dynamics of the rally, right? Creating a little bit more chaos, I would say. Yeah. Organized chaos is what I call it. Yeah, I'm looking for the mixed doubles. I'm excited for the six. The sixteen mixed doubles draw looks thrilling. I, I think Diego Ellis is playing with his mom. Possibly, I'm not positive though. All right, mo- moving on. No, no, he's he's playing in the men's doubles. He's he only play one event, Bill. He is playing in the men's doubles, and with a player whose highest world rank ever was 361. Yes, high, high, good at doubles. What's that? Alonzo's good at doubles. I'm looking at the draw right now. He's good. I, I parsed the draw this morning. I went through each scenario, and after I fell asleep, I woke back up and just I'm ready. I'm ready to do the podcast now. <laughs> Moving on from because it's always a point of contention. Because to me, I, I'm not a doubles fan. Nothing that has and I talked the same thing in the CSA Gilly when they have the CSA championships and they have a doubles championship as part of it. It's just a joke, right? It's not real. So let's not pretend it's real. I don't have any. Com- I have no comment on that. <laughs> I noticed all the UPenn players playing in there, by the way, in the doubles. I, I, know, I, know, I noticed that. Moving on to Gilly's Forte. And this is the reason we have Gilly on, not just because he's such a good friend of ours. Actually, Bill, just a Forte, he's, his Forte is every single one of these topics. So that's a little... Totally fair. It's totally fair. I'm just saying this is his... Is, is such thing as your biggest Forte? Is that a thing? No? Okay. Is that even... My my Joe Forte. <laughs> Your Joe Forte. Very good. The CSA season is upon us. Shockingly, this weekend, my favorite event, the Ivy League scrimmages, in which all the Ivy League teams get together. They don't really keep score. Not all the best players play, and nobody knows the results until someone goes down and looks at the little whiteboard at Yale and looks at the grease pen that has written that Penn beat Harvard in the final. There's the, no live the, scoring, no, no scoring. live stream, nothing. nothing. It's it's literally like a black ops mission <laughs> where no one knows anything about it. So, Gilly, tell us this. Why are the Ivy League scrimmages still a thing? There's a bunch of some people that love it, some people that hate it, some players love it, some players hate it. I think side, what it does is it provides opportunity for the freshmen to really understand what college squash is all about, playing as a team, the energy, the excitement. I think in that way, it's really good. I think from a coaching standpoint, we worry about the injuries like right before you play three hard matches in 24 hours, basically. We're, we're playing three ma- two matches Saturday, two match or one match on Sunday, regardless. So you play out to your position. It's not a knockout. That matches in such a short time, being in the first weekend of the season, you're, it's a little tough. And that's where I think most coaches, but most coaches see both sides of it, right? You, you have to rotate your, your lineup accordingly. You have to give people experience. But it's also, I've come around to it in terms of, it's, it's competition, right? And it's competition where... The result doesn't necessarily matter for your rankings or anything, but it does it, it does provide confidence for the young guys and, and, and girls and, and a, a, a little intro to college squash that you probably want before maybe a first big match in the season if, if something big's on the line. Is it strictly logistical and travel-wise why it's at Yale? It used to be at Yale. Equidistance. That's why. Equidistant for, for all the teams to get to. Dartmouth has a, a pretty long way. Cornell, same, us, we're, we're about four-hour drive. We had it one year at Penn when we opened up the squash courts, so we asked everyone if they would come down when we opened our new facility to say, hey, would you be okay? Because we had a big dinner on that Saturday night, so that was great of everyone. And shout out to, to Dave Talbot and love him dearly and sorely miss him. He was the one who rallied everyone to bring everyone down to Philly as well, say, so, yeah, we'll do it, because the Ivy scrimmage was his baby for so many years and such a great host. And amazing human being yeah and so that's we're having it yale and hopefully we get to honor dave this weekend in an appropriate way and i think of all years to go to the ivy scrimmage at yale 
I'm most excited to go to, to honor him and, and to be there and, and out of respect for him and what he did for the game. And we're going to have a moment to honor him at the beginning of the scrimmage, which I think is fantastic. I don't think it's like Bob Callahan, like, how do you mm -hmm. honor somebody who's done so much? There's anything that you do almost isn't enough, right? <laughs> right. For everything that they've done as a young coach, trying to look up to those guys and um, have the impact that they had as well. So I'm excited to play and excited to play and when we've trained really hard and I think it's good to see the young guys go compete. So talking about the the CSA men's and we'll stick with the men's and we'll have a, a women's coach on to talk about their the, the forecast for their season. So looking at the your favorite thing, the preseason rankings, Gilly, oh. I see number one right on top, the universe, same thing as on your ski cap that you're wearing, the University of Pennsylvania, that's your school. You're the preseason number one. Talk about yeah. that. And is there a target on your back? All joking aside, do you feel pressure as the preseason number one? Are you happy with the preseason number one? I actually one? don't know how we are. I think it's pretty, I think we all think that there's some really good teams. Harvard and Trinity were in the final last year and, and Trinity got better. And I know Harvard lost the, Harvard lost the Tarek and they lost George Crown. I mean, there's two big names, but they're still really good. And the last time I checked, they won the national championship again. And I don't know whether you're going to jinx us again. You jinxed us last year. How, time. how so? I, I, when you predicted us to win and, and I, I told you right after that you just jinxed us. <laughs> So I don't know whether you're going to do that again, teams that are being overlooked. And I know it's based off a rating, but then there's also the, the, the eye test, right? The eye test. And it's also like the respect given to those teams, right? So you have the, the reigning individual champion at Trinity back. Sharaf is back. Mm -hmm. Nasser is playing great. They're all playing PSA tournaments. They have um, a couple good freshmen that came in. Harvard got... Uh, a uh, boy from uh, Egypt, England, and, and Canada. So they, they, they brought good players in. Princeton's really good. Yale's really good. UVA is better. Drexel got a very good class. The most exciting thing about the CSA is on the guy side is the most open it's been ever. Most equal, I feel like, ever. So it is going to come down to the day, and I think you are going to see the rankings potentially shift throughout the season more than you've ever seen it. The other thing as well is that the new format for the finals is different. So it's 12-team CSA National Championship. Mm -hmm. Top four teams get a direct um, buy into the quarterfinals. So then the five through 12 are playing into that spot. So what we're trying to do is shed bigger limelight on the national finals. The men and women will play the same weekend, which is fantastic, at the Spectre Center. So playing for that top four is huge because – if you're the five seed, you'd have to win Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday to win the national championship. So that's what I was going to ask you. They are playing Thursday. It's not only just, not just a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Now they're not going to make teams Correct. play twice in one day. Correct. So you could have a team. Let's and I think honestly, it's so equal. Looking at some of the rosters, if you looked at the ratings, and the ratings are pretty accurate, and in a way, like you don't see much. Like someone who's a a six point five doesn't often lose to a six point one or a, or a six point zero, but you have so many good players in that range and home and away really matters and you know it'll be fun I, I think but then after this next two years guys is still you still have that build up from covid so you have a lot of fifth years you have a lot of guys that are still around that took those gap years and so you're going to see again i think the quality is going to be really high is there a freshman out there uh from one of the top teams that got recruited that, you, that you're aware of who's going to make a splash on the csa tour not necessarily for no, there's school. a couple of them. I mean, we have one, Salman Khalil, who was three in the, he was three at the World Juniors this summer. He's a freshman at Penn. Omar Azam, who was at Harvard. Trinity got a couple good freshmen. Princeton got Hollis Robertson. Hollis had a great win over uh, Rowan at the Worlds. Right. right? So there's a list of players. It just gets keeps getting deeper and deeper. There's a kid at Drexel named Yusuf Bastawi, who's going to play in the top of the lineup next to Harris Kasim. Like he's very talented as well and. I know I'm missing somebody and, and they're going to be like, oh, why didn't you mention my name? But there's just so many. And and I think that's what college squash now is attracting so many of these top players that are playing the tour, that are playing world juniors, that are finishing in the quarterfinals. So it's an exciting time to, to be, be in the CSA, I think. Who is the top American college squash player right now on the men's side, Gilly, if you could say that? I, I looked through the lineups and it didn't seem, I think the only person I saw playing in the top two was there was a, and I don't follow junior squash, so I don't know the names as well. So I, if I mispronounce this name, there was a, a William Aubie playing number two for Dartmouth listed on the lineups. But otherwise I didn't see too many American players in the top of the lineups for these major programs. Who is, who are the best American, American junior college players right now? I would go with Nick Spaziri mm -hmm. from Penn, 
who played played two for us last year, went undefeated in the national championships. He's back. You have Thomas Rossini at Princeton. You have Max Orr at Yale. I think Hollis, obviously, being a freshman at Princeton, is going to play pretty high. Nick was seated one at the PBI this past weekend and lost in the final to one of our players, Nathan Kue from Malaysia. But I feel we feel like Nick is right now the best American player. But there's obviously, like I said, Max Orr, Rossini, Hollis Robertson. I'm going to be missing somebody, but those guys are all have all proven themselves as really strong players on the, on in juniors and in, in college squash as well. Okay. Other, the other team I wanted to give a shout out to is, and I always do my former, my fr- first intern ever at U.S. Squash, Joey Rejo's Tufts. Tufts team is number 12 preseason ranked in the country. Just phenomenal. Yeah, he's doing great. Obviously, I'm biased for him. He's one, he was in my wedding. He's one of my best friends. I talk to him a lot, more than I talk to you, Bill. And, and, I, and I, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to hurt our friendship. I, but he's doing great. I, I think the new center they built was so it's so well done. It's so well laid out. He's got great support from his athletic director and he's motivated. And it's one of those things, I think, having a young coach motivated to do really well and, and say, okay, we want to challenge these other programs, these historical programs that have been successful and we want to create something new. He's got a, a bunch of, he's got a good combination of strong American players and international recruits, and he's been able to get that support. And so it's, it's great that new teams, we need new teams to break through. It's great for our sport when we see new names and providing new, more opportunity for the students. And, you know, I think it's good for the game. And what an incentive with the new structure going to the top 12 that really extends, hey, that is meaning versus meaningful versus it used to be delineated by the eights, right? Top 12, baby. You guys will be Yeah, there that's, we want to build it towards their, to like NCAA top 16, where there's a selection show and you have at-large bids and you've won your conference tournament. And you see all the conferences, actually, this, the mass conference where, you know, Stanford's traveling across to play in this massive tournament, but we want to get it to a point where there's more competition amongst all the teams so that the tournament at the end, like the conference tournament, maybe someone's outside the rankings and they need that automatic bid. Totally. And we can have that and we can have a selection show on, on and where people are picking out of the hat and, oh, who do we get? And my biggest dream would to be have a, would to have a 16 draw, more teams. The first weekend, right, there's four host sites. And you play your 16 and Elite Eight. And then the following weekend is a Final Four. And it's just single elimination. Single elimination, that's it. You're playing for two weekends, just like the other sports. And, and if we can get it to that and, and really hype it up and, and have a you know, midweek show and everything like that, I think the kids would love it. And, and people love hearing about college squash. They want to know what's going on. They want to know who's playing where. They want to know who's getting recruited by whom. Like, how did that challenge match go? All the challenge matches yeah. now are on U.S. squash. You can pretty much see what the lineups are. So it, there's a lot of transparency, and I think it's good for the game. Totally agree. And the, the missing component there is this really broadcast. Yeah, that would be the next level we need to add in. Yeah, streaming the streaming quality from event to event is some sometimes watchable, sometimes not watchable. If you know the players on totally. the team and, and you're related to them, you could pretty much watch anything. But if you're a fan, it's tough to watch college squash on a stream for sure. So the, the, the quality of broadcast isn't there. Looking forward to that. It's Connor and I's favorite part of the squash season is when college squash starts. It gives us a lot of content to talk about. So we look forward to, to, to picking your brain, Gilly, for any inside information that we could get on the, on the tour. I want to know your pick now. You pen to win the national championship. <laughs> to, to break the Philly streak of finishing second. I mean- to Philly, look, you had the Phillies lost in the World Series last year. The Eagles lost in the Super Bowl. The Union lost in the MLS final. So... I think this is the and UPenn, This is the year to break the Philly jinx, and I think UPenn's going to do it. UPenn, 2024 national squash champions. There you go. Set it. See what he's doing, Connor. See what he's doing. Kelly, to be fair, you walked right into that. You walked. You're like, I'm going to set it, and then you can spike it. Gilly, Gilly, let me ask you a question. No, I'm not going to ask Gilly this question. Mohammed. Mohammed Al Shabagi, uh, what do you think? <laughs> After that, he doesn't get the, he doesn't get the impersonation. That's come on, sure. come he, on. He just why had he said somebody else, it probably would have happened. Mohammed, tell me why you think that uh, Harvard University is going to win the uh, the national championship again. Actually, answer that because I don't know who's going to win it. Who would you think Mohammed Al Shabagi is going to win the national championship? Or just talk about what do you think? What do you think is going to happen in do I think- squash? <laughs> No, I, I I can't do it. I can't. Yeah. I can't do it. I can't do it, Bill. After that pick, it's after you picked us. It's boo. 
Bill, don't well, forget. I have before actually we... a question. One question for you guys, and and what's for in terms of college squash? What is your favorite part of the college squash uh, of, of college squash? And what would if there was anything that you would change? What would you change? I'll go, Bill. Go ahead. So one of the things I'm glad to see that they're already changing the format towards the team national championships. I think this is the exact right direction and the steps that you take to get more towards the what you outlined. I would like to see there are multiple titles up for grabs. So the individuals, the doubles and teams. And I think it's too much to have individuals postseason. I, I think it really it's really tough on the players. I it could be cool from a hey, look, we have one more cherry on top. But I'd like to see that switch to the fall being individuals and doubles, where you can bring some meaning, maybe have that in December as like a an event so you can build towards that. And then the second half is all teams. So I would like something like that where there's more delineation between the meaning of each championship right and some separation my favorite part obviously is the team aspect of it i love team squash team squash is the most fun to watch my my least favorite part is the behavior i think the behavior of college squash players over the years has gotten worse and worse it could be have something to do with the refereeing but a lot of the art during the individuals the arguing the, the during the team championships the arguing the banging on the glass it it became a little too much for me to watch so i think curbing of the behavior of, it, it became almost an extension of junior squash, which at times is as ugly as it gets. And I think we need to put a little, curb that a bit to make the, the, the product just more watchable from a fan's point of view. Is it the banging of the glass in celebration or is the banging of the glass in... Both. It's both. I don't like the over-celebrating. I don't like the, uh, uh, I win the third point of the match and I'm doing the triple fist pump. Just And I understand it's a learned behavior. No, that's fair. The, we talk about it, it's like, keeping your emotions in check, right? And 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 they're actually going to penalize people more this year mm -hmm. uh, for those things, which I think is fantastic. And I, I think, again, but then there's always the line, what's the line? And is someone fist pumping in someone's face or are they, or are they doing it you know, to the team? I think one of the greatest things about college squash is the passion and the kids and the kids playing for their team. And I think you see all the college kids now wanting to play represent, still representing their universities and wearing their logos on the tour because they love their experience it's one of the best squash experience that they had you don't want to take away the passion of it because i think the sheer emotion like our national final against harvard during that covid year was one of the best i had people saying to me that was one of the best sporting events they've ever been to and they've been to a oh, lot wow. of sporting events so i would the banging on the glass at the end of the match i think that's the raw emotion the throwing of the rackets, the blocking, that needs to stop, right? And that's something as coaches we need to take, be accountable for, and we need to nip that right when it happens and be the people that are saying, duck him, a, duck him a point, you know what I mean? And I totally agree with you. So it's just trying to find that balance because I don't think we want to lose the emotion. I don't think we want to lose that energy and that feel because people come, oh, that's exciting. Can it be done in a tasteful way? 100%. And I think that's on all of us as leaders, right, to step in and say, love the emotion, love the energy, love the positivity, but it's got to be done this way. It's hard. It's hard to step in and say that sometimes. And so as a fan, the last thing that I would like to change and understanding completely why they don't do it, because obviously academics trump all, is so I live very close to Yale University. I love going to watch their dual matches. Having all the Ivy League matches being played during on the weekend is a struggle for me because on the weekend I have things to do. I would love like a Tuesday night matchup between Harvard and Yale at Yale or a, a Wednesday night matchup, something that I could go to after work and, and go watch some squash. Yeah. It's just, it's a sheer, it's a sheer academics. Yep. Because again, I think it's basketball obviously needs it that has the TV money. And if we had TV money, then I think we would play those midweek matches. Like it'd be the midweek match of the week. Right. But yeah. it'd be awesome to have you guys as the people like, Oh, Wednesday match with a midweek match of the week. Let's go over the lineups and let's assess like who we think is going to win. That would be an awesome show. It'd be amazing. Yeah. You have people tuning in. Well, this person's playing this and that's what we need. But I yeah. think it's also the volume of academic work that these kids have. Yep. Understood. Is brutal. I had to hundred percent understand why it's done. It's just always been like, Hey, sat the weekends are sacrosanct to me so it's tough for me to i will this weekend come watch the ivy league scrimmages for a bit on saturday but uh, otherwise a saturday afternoon match in the fall in the yeah. winter is tough yeah how are you bill? gonna instagram from your boat if you're watching a squash match at yeah it's 100 percent. bill has places to be bill has places to be i, I do
Bill, but Listen, don't you can't do Friday he... mornings. That's his golf round, <laughs> and then Saturdays he's on his boat. He's shouting out the podcast. <laughs> Bill, don't forget we have to do our listener winner oh, before we wrap oh, up for sure. So during the during the tournament in in Philadelphia, the U.S. Open, the Olympic announcement had just happened. So I went around and asked some of the older players on tour, over thirty folks, whether they had planned they planned to stick around and continue their PSA careers in hopes of landing an Olympic spot for their country. And we asked our listeners to, because we didn't give names, to name in order the players that I spoke to. So the first person who, I believe he was the first person who entered the contest and got them all correct. No, he was in the top five. He was in the top Top five. Top five. How many people actually did it? Five? (laughs) Six? How many people? Come on, tell me. How many responses did you get? I did it. Did you? You, oh, okay. Directly. Oh, really? Oh, I forget. I, I don't remember that, Gilly. Just like you don't remember that why I you owe me dinner. So go ahead. So Connor, announce our winner, and the winner gets to bring Bill to lunch. It is the one and only Simba. Simba Mawadi, my, and, uh, my <laughs> golf partner. Yeah. What was tripping other people up was the the Ralph Condra. Yeah, that was a tough. He was a wild card. Good segment. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good segment. That's a great idea, actually. Hey, just know Simba. We're going to Simba won, but we're going to because Simba had a slight transgression since that happened. So Simba and I had a golf match set up at a very nice private course. I was nice enough. One of our mutual friends set us up to play Simba. No showed, no showed, never showed up, never called. No show, no call, never showed up to the tea time. So maybe doesn't win the lunch because of that. Fair. You make the rules anyway, Bill. So true. Well, it's your world, Bill. We're just living it. All right, Gilly. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. I think it shows, if nothing else, that PJ is very replaceable. And if you didn't have a full time job as coach of, of the 2024 national champion Penn men's team, that you could be the the co host of this event of this uh, podcast. So uh, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Weekly guest. I'm pulling for bi weekly guest. All right, you're in. You're in. I, I, I have no objection. So thanks, Gilly. Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.